Well, what a fun Sunday to all be together. It's uh, sunny, it's nice, and look where we are. So I applaud you for being here this morning, and uh, I trust that uh, it's going to be a real blessing. It's already been. Thank you again for coming and leading us in worship. Uh, It's always a treat. Thank you, Seth. It was beautiful. Just a beautiful spirit. So thank you. It makes it real easy to move into a phase of uh, talking about God's Word. I want to share a little bit about, uh, so my name is Doug Sprunt. I have the privilege of being on staff very part-time here at the church, and I also work at a ministry in Ottawa called One Way Ministries. And part of what I do in the combination of both of these ministries is I actually work with uh, church planters, with pastors, with ministry leaders. I hold weekend retreats and times of listening prayer, and it's, it's pretty varied, which really suits my personality because I don't like things to be the same all the time. So I enjoy not really knowing how a day is going to unfold. Uh, and it's kind of fun to look at the end of the day and think, wow, I never saw any of that coming. That was kind of fun. So, but the one thing I do find is that there's actually a common thread no matter where I go. And uh, I just want to say to those of you that were at church last week, my wife and I are still good. She's not in here right now, but it's not because we're not getting along. She, oh, there she is. Hey, preacher girl. Woo! Anyway, so uh, I was at a, just with One Way Ministries, I was speaking at another church last Sunday. So unfortunately, I missed her, but I got to hear her on, on the website last night. So what a preacher. Thank you, honey. There we go. She's come a long way from our Plymouth Brethren days. So <laughs> anyway, one thing I find that's really common as I meet with people, and most of the people I meet with actually are men, but I think it's common in all of us is that most of us don't know why we're stuck in certain habits, in dysfunctions, or locked in some personality things. We just don't understand why we're that way. And we try to change, we diligently try to change, and yet we eventually just succumb back to our our old ways. We just kind of go back to the way we were. When I moved here, it's been... um, I, I can't believe it. I think it's been like 40 years this Labor Day that I'll actually moved here to Ottawa from St. Catharines. And I still can't believe I live here because I never wanted to live anywhere cold. I was from a warmer city in Ontario and never wanted to live here. But now I don't want to be anywhere else. So I'm grateful to be here. But when I moved up here, I thought, well, nobody knows me. So I'm going to actually create a new personality. And I'm going to be somebody different because I really didn't like who I was. So I'm going to try to be different. And I can't even tell you how quickly that fizzled. And I quickly became the real me. Even the me I didn't want to be, I still became that me again. So I am an expert of which I talk about. That I can try to change and I eventually just succumb back to my old ways. And it's frustrating. Why? Why doesn't there seem to be this change? So if you're anything like me, we plead, we pray, we confess, we repent, we change, we fall back, we plead, we pray, we confess, we repent, and there's still very little change, actually, that occurs. We're just a little more tired, but very little change that's actually really occurred in the core of who we are. So what's wrong with me? Why can't I change? What's wrong with you, you might ask? Why can't you change? Why are we stuck? And that's what I want to talk about today. 
So as I meet with ministry leaders and pastors, I'm not telling tales on them, but maybe I am, that many of them can preach very eloquent messages and truths that they truly, truly believe in their heart, but it doesn't change them. They're stuck. I just saw a stat last week that one in five pastors struggles with porn, actively struggles with porn. And these would be evangelical pastors. And many struggle with fears and and deep-rooted issues. And though we know the gospel, we can sing these beautiful worship songs, it somehow doesn't get here. And so we believe, man, we totally believe. And I can persuade you, I can convince you, and you'll be like, yes. And then there'll be these times where I just know that this is still what it was. I had the joy of volunteering at Jericho Road. I was there again last week, and just always an interesting, fascinating ministry. Um, They have two sides of it. One is for addiction recovery. The other side of it is for people with mental illnesses or need more constant care. And... um, I primarily am involved in the side of people, of guys just coming off of mental, uh, sorry, addictions. There, some of them are just back a day, so you get them quite fresh. And um, I love them because they are who they are. They're not trying to pretend to be anything they're not. They are, if they're annoyed at you, they'll tell you they're annoyed at you. If you bug them, they'll tell you you bug them. If they're having a blank, blank day, they'll tell you exactly that way. They're having a blank, blank day. And it's like, well, I've Never been in another group where I've heard adjectives used this way before, but it's definitely a a clear description of how and where you're at. But the one thing that is true about any addict is that if you get them to quit using whatever they're using, that's only the start. There's actually a term called a dry alcoholic, which means you're an alcoholic, you just don't drink, but everything about you is still condemned and locked into that whole thing of, I, I just, I'm still not free. I just don't drink or use drugs. So they must go somewhere deeper. There must be into that deeper reasons of why they got to where they got. And there's a need for them to face the pain that they've been avoiding, that we've been avoiding. Man, do I ever learn a lot from them? So we take them through the 12-step program and some very vital things like that. We teach them on some prayer counseling Um, some reliving new ways, avoiding some past patterns, practical steps on how to live their lives in a new way. It's all good. It's all essential, but those are still techniques. They still don't change this part right here. So each of us, whether or not we're an addict of this type or an addict of another type, whether or not we're living in dysfunctional behaviors or lifestyles, we all must go to the heart, and it's the heart that Jesus says is central to all of us. So in Romans 10 and 9, Paul says that unless you believe with your mind and confess with your, sorry, confess with your mind, believe in your heart that Christ has raised you from the dead, you're not really saved. You've got to believe in your heart. So what does it mean to believe in your heart? Well, it means that's the center of everything. The last part of my body to stay alive is my heart. Everything else starts shutting down in the process of death. And the body fights to retain the heart. But the final thing to go, and Teresa, this is not because you've turned 75. We're not talking about death. You've got 100 years on you, girl. There we go. But all of a sudden, she's looking at me like, what? I'm only 75. No, the heart is really the whole core of our whole being. So that's the term that's used here. In the core of your whole being, are you whole is really what's being said there. Do you really believe that a gospel in the core of you can transform you?
So most of us, and I say that, but I'd say probably all of us to some degree, live with hearts that are in some way have been wounded, they've been broken. When you say that somebody has a broken heart, the Hebrew word for a broken heart, broken means it's just burst open. In other words, it can't contain the pressure inside anymore, and it just bursts. So when Jesus is referred to as coming to heal the brokenhearted, he came to heal those whose hearts were burst. They can't hold life together anymore. All of us are wounded. All of us are broken. So what we try to do is we try to fix and we try to change, we try to medicate our hearts, which becomes fertile ground for addictions. Our primary initial wound in our heart usually, and I'm a father and a grandfather, but usually it stems from our fathers. That's pretty common teaching. Um, and I know that myself, I look back and think, wow, what have I done? And I have. I have intentionally or non-intentionally, mostly non-intentionally, wounded even my own children. Just in things that I've done or not done. And we bear a wound. I bear a wound from situations with my dad. So as babies, as toddlers, as children, our identity is affirmed through our parents, but primarily through our father. Often in the process of life, there is another message we receive, though, either intentionally or unintentionally, which creates a deep wounding in us. So this is a very high-level overview of, of what this involves. But I wanted to do it because I actually want to see where this can go about how the theme that I felt God was saying to me today is that Jesus says, I've come to heal those with burst hearts. And that's the gospel. And it's not in heaven, it's now. So the wound often, as I said, comes from our fathers. And you might say, well, I didn't have a father. That's a wound right there. And unfortunately, that does happen. But we're missing what a father should give when we don't have one. So we could have come from abuse, verbal, physical, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, lack of love, abandonment, what we missed out on that we should have had is a, is a loss, is a wound. A father who worked all the time that had no time for us. Uh, alcoholism, violence, fear, um, comparison to a sibling all the time. You'll never be, you're not good enough. Um, just not having a father. Like, my dad didn't know how to be a dad because his dad never fathered him. I understand that. I have great compassion on what my dad tried. But I suffered the wounds of his fathering. So when we're wounded as a child, um, we hear a message. So the first thing that happens is a wound occurs. And even when we're two, three, four years old, man, I am amazed. My little three-year-old grandson, he picks up on everybody where they're at. He just picks up. He knows. He can't formulate the words, but he knows. And I know he knows. So we, even at an early age, if we've been wounded, man, we know what we've heard. And we might not be able to explain it, but we receive a message from that wounding. And whatever that message is, at that early tender age, we wind up believing it to be true. And we embrace it as a guiding post for our lives. It can be something like, I am not good enough. I am not wanted. I'm not loved. I am worthless. I'm on my own. I have to figure it out. There's no one here to help me. It's me. Those become internal messages that we hear and live out of. Out of that message, wound, message, the third thing that comes is an agreement. 
And this internal message, even at an early age, makes sense to us, to what we have seen, what we know, what we've experienced. And consciously or unconsciously, we then make an agreement in our heart that this is true. In the core of who we are, we believe this message. And we begin to live our lives out of that message. My message was I was not wanted. I will have to prove myself. I am not wanted. My father favored my brother. He favored my sister. I was, what the heck am I? That's what I was. So that internal message is what I grew up with. And we began, and I began, to live my life out of that wound. What follows the wound, the message, the agreement, is something that John Eldridge in his teaching of Wild at Heart says is the vow. And the vow becomes the guiding post of your life. It's the rudder that steers you through everything. Like it or not, it's what controls you greater than any ability of what you think you've got on your own. It's this vow. And the vow stems out of an agreement that this is the way I am, so I make a vow, usually internally, and I live my life out of that way. Because of hurts and wounds in my own personal life, I actually made a vow when I was in grade five, and I remember exactly where I was in the corner of Scott and Bunting Avenue in St. Catharines, and I made a vow that I would not let anybody ever get close to me so that they would never hurt me again. I will never need anybody in my life. I'm in grade five, but I made a vow. And I lived my life a long time out of that. Try being married to somebody that's made a vow that they don't need anybody. And it's a guiding principle. It's there. It's in my heart. So the demands of all of this, this insatiable pressure on our hearts, cause our hearts to burst. And we, in our own humanness, need to fix our hearts. So we turn to something to satisfy this demand of our heart, to heal the brokenness. No matter what we do, we know that our hearts are still out of line and that it's still broken and nothing's fixing it. So we turn to things that eventually, instead of us controlling them, they control us. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, written, I think, in the 20s or 30s, when you actually read it, it's the best gospel message I've ever heard of. It's the clearest unrepentance I've ever seen. I'm not talking so much today about higher power. I'm talking about them talking about this, I cannot change on my own. I need to turn my life over to God completely, including my wounded heart, and let him begin his process of healing in me. I cannot do it on my own. I need others in my life, but I need God to change me. So thanks be to God that he does not leave us in this state. But thanks be to God that he sent us Jesus to the cross that we might be healed. So Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, verse 18, I'm just going to read one verse, but this has been my theme for the last couple weeks. Jesus, referring to the prophet Isaiah, which I would say was a couple thousand years before Jesus came to earth, that Isaiah quoted of Jesus, and Jesus then in turn quotes the prophet Isaiah. Luke 4, verse 18, Jesus says this of himself. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he, God, has anointed me, Jesus, to bring the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. 
That's why Jesus came. Wow. So my preacher wife last week used an acrostic of the word gospel. I like calling her preacher. She's going to tell me off later on this afternoon, but it's kind of fun just doing that. She's nodding, man. She's just giving me the eyes. Like, I wasn't preaching, honey. I was sharing. Okay. So the acrostic of gospel is this. G, God created us to be with him. O, our sins separated us from God. S, sins cannot be removed with our own efforts. P, paying the price for our sins, Jesus died and rose again. E, everyone who trusts, believes in their heart, has eternal life. And L, life with Jesus begins now. I always thought it was in the future when I get to be in heaven. But it begins now and lasts forever. So Jesus says of himself when he's announcing himself and saying, this is who I am. He says, this is the good news that I have come to bring. This gospel to the poor. Who are the poor? The poor are the broken. They just know they have need. Some of the richest people I know are desperately poor. I was doing a talk one day and I showed a picture of our family. I think there was 19 of us at that point. And I showed a picture of our family, and he came up to me afterwards, this guy, and he's incredible. He's wealthy, got everything imaginable. And he said, you have something that I do not have. You have a family that loves each other and wants to be together. You cannot buy that. Because I had a picture of them on, an, on a screen. And then he said, on top of that, you have peace in your heart. He became a believer a short time after that. Cool. But Jesus came to proclaim that captives will be free. They will be released. The blind, those who cannot find their own way, will be able to be see. They will be able to see the oppressed, those that are wounded of heart, those whose hearts are just so downtread, the oppressed will be healed and set free. And those are the words of what Jesus came and proclaimed when he announced himself on the earth. So great, great teaching. One of the things that frustrates me to death is give me a teaching and then tell me not, what, what do I do with it? Well, you just go and figure it out yourself. Ah, I can't figure stuff like that out. I have a mental block when it comes to figuring stuff out. So show me how to do it, just show me. I was given a lawn tractor a week and a half ago. It's still sitting under a tarp by my garage door. It's sitting there. Because my genius neighbor has been away and can't tell me. I don't even know how to change gears in it. So Linda said, Google. Are you kidding? How do you Google how to drive a non-automatic lawn tractor? Like, that's not going to happen. I need my buddy next door, Mr. Genius, to come over and say, well, you take this and you do this. And, oh, this is where you check this. And now you hear this noise over here, this, aha, and then I'll get it. So I borrowed his lawn tractor yesterday in the middle of the rain and then zipped back when the thunder and lightning was hitting. I thought, forget it. We'll do it some other day. That's how I learn. So don't tell me to go and figure it out myself. I won't figure it out myself. I'll sit there and think, and we'll chalk that one up to just another mystery of what I'm supposed to do with his gospel. So how do we practically live this gospel out? How, do I, how does it get to my heart? Don't tell me any more about this. And in the church that I was raised in, it drove them crazy because I would say, well, Okay, we believe in this personal relationship and a gospel that changes my heart. How? And it was this mystery of we don't know. 
I mean, they wouldn't really say that. They would tell me, read your Bible more, pray more, go to more church. Oh, my goodness, please, if I do anything more, I'm going to kill myself. No. Let's go into where does it begin? Well, this is what I've learned from my dear alcoholic friends because Jesus says you need the poor. You need the poor to find out how poor you really are. And my time at Jericho Road has shown me, and my time with meeting with very wealthy people and seeing their own brokenness has shown me that all of us, when we're honest, are actually poor. So we come as we are. We come out of hiding. We come out of the darkness that we found ourselves hiding in. We come out and we admit what we're doing. We state our hearts and our lives are really... um, Uh, we quit covering it. We state our lives are this way. This is how I am. This is what's, and one of the things I I really, I love about addicts is, again, their honesty, but I love about how they try to lie because they're really, really bad at lying. They're really, really good at lying, let me tell you, but they're also really bad at lying. So, well, like, I I really didn't use, like, I, I didn't really, like, I didn't, I didn't do this. I just went and used a little bit of this and a little bit of this, and I was, I was really in control of it. The first time. And with any addict, in a few times, they're gone for a whole weekend. If, at best, they can even come back. They're not in control. It's, not, it's nothing you can do. And I, and I see so many of us that may not have addictions to, to drugs or alcohol or sex or gambling and stuff like that, but we've got other addictions we don't even know we've got. And we've lived our lives in a, in a captivity that keeps people from loving us and keeps us from loving and keeps us from receiving and keeps, keeps us all at a safe place because we're so wounded in our hearts. And we live in this dysfunction and we don't even know we're, we're in dysfunction. And we need the poor to tell us, you're like me, really. In all of your elaborate garb, you're just like me on the inside. So we need to come out of hiding, quit covering our wounds like Adam and Eve did when they were in the garden. As soon as they sinned, they covered themselves up and hid from God. Man, we've been doing that ever since the garden. And we need to say, here I am in all my glory. I'm naked before you. I'm not hiding anything anymore. The second thing we do is we admit we're actually powerless to change. This comes straight out of the AA book. I cannot change myself. And so much of my Christian journey has been me trying to change myself. My efforts, my pleading, my praying, my, my, my. Not God's, mine. So I admit that I am powerless to change, that I have tried and I've failed, and many times just frankly given up. So the third thing, whatever I'm using to mask the pain of my heart, I have to quit. And in doing that, I have to face the pain of what really is going on in my heart. I can't medicate it anymore. I need to face this pain. Invite Jesus, by the power of his spirit, to come into this wound and heal me. So I say to Jesus, come. And Jesus says to me, come. Just as you are. Jake, his message, we're loved. Can't do anything about it. We are loved by the Father. And I appreciated, Paul, about the covenants that we've been given. They do not change regardless of how we feel. These covenants do not change. God invites us to come in. And as I was praying, and praying specifically about us, I I just sensed, and I wrote this down, that Jesus would say to each one of us, Come, allow me to heal and restore you. Allow my love to wash over you and cleanse you. Come. 
allow me to do this. And that's how it begins. So we receive. Instead of me trying to generate, I receive. I receive what the Spirit of God is doing. I allow myself to be loved by my Father. I, we, surrender any attempts to serve and to save and to heal ourselves. And instead, I receive his salvation. And I'm free from my own. So in a practical story that I was actually firsthand part of, I was not the only guy involved in it. I would not claim credit for it. But I had the privilege of being in a man's life when he began to experience for the first time in his life that he had a wound. I won't say his name, although his story is pretty public. But I'd like to share the story about my friend. And I think you can see this progress of how God began to address in his life what had bound him and how he got set free. So my friend, when he was a three-year-old boy, his father had severe mental illness, and his father once again was taking off and leaving the family. So his mom said to him by name, go, go, grab your daddy. He's just leaving out the door and tell him, tell him you love him. Tell him you want him to stay. Beg him to stay. So this three-year-old boy runs after his daddy, holds onto his daddy's leg and says, Daddy, Daddy, I want you to stay. I love you. I love you. Like a typical three-year-old boy would do with his daddy. And the father just kicked him away, literally, and said, You mean nothing to me. I do not love you. A three-year-old boy. What's the message he gets? The wound, that's obvious, isn't it? The message... The little boy in his heart, this is what he heard. I mean nothing to my dad. He doesn't love me. And the message led this little boy to begin to understand an agreement that came out of this message. There is something wrong with me. I have no value. I am not lovable. And these agreements drove him, even as a little boy, to begin to make a vow and live out of that vow. He said within himself and made this a vow, I will prove my dad wrong. I will prove myself to him and to everyone. I will make him proud and then he will love me. Success will prove my worth and my value. So he lived his life an incredibly successful businessman. Made a lot of money. Built a lot of businesses. Excelled in everything he did. He was a perfectionist. Everything he did was perfect. Why? Was he really a perfectionist? Or was he still trying to prove to his dad, I'm going to show you I'm perfect, and you are going to love me? The problem is, is that it's a relentless taskmaster, so he never, ever felt free. He never felt it was good enough. 100% was never the case. It was always 80 or 90, and there was always the fear of the 15 or 10. This is not good enough. I'm never good enough. So he turned to alcohol. He turned to drugs. He turned to sex. He turned to anything that would hold his life together and in any way numb his bursting heart. So he went to visit his dad when he was in the pinnacle of his success. Here, dad, look what I've done, man. I am so successful. Look what I've done. So he goes and visits his dad, makes a special arrangement to go and see his dad. And his dad said to him, and I quote, you would have never done any of this if it wasn't for your brother. That just led him to a place of absolute despair, rejected once again, broken, nowhere to go, 
and spiraled downward. His marriage was falling apart. His kids were all over the place. His wife encountered some people that led her to Jesus. She said to her husband one day, do you want to come to church? And he thought, sure, why not? So he got stoned and got drunk and went to church, a church that some of you may have actually gone to. So it's quite funny because you don't picture that there's people in the congregation at the moment that are actually stoned and drunk. And um, they had a prayer line. So he went up for the prayer line. Why not? He's stoned and drunk. He's not really known what's going on. And during the prayer line, literally, the pastor was praying for people, and he saw Jesus. Like he experienced Jesus. In his own terms, I don't want to quote him because this is his story, but he experienced Jesus and got born again. Like just no sinner's prayer, no little booklet, nobody leading him. He just saw Jesus reveal himself to him. He saw his brokenness. He saw Jesus. He saw this incredible need and surrendered his life to the one who heals broken hearts. Began a healing journey. It's been an absolute joy to walk with him over these last three years and to see how much he has changed. And here's what he had to do in that journey. He had to confess that the message he had believed was a lie, and he invited God to reveal the truth of who he really was and who God created him to be. He agreed with the truth of who he was in Christ according to God's word. He agreed. And he renounced the vow that he had made, acknowledged it as sin, forgave his dad, and asked forgiveness of God for the way that he had tried healing himself and the pain that it had caused on his family, on his relationships with himself. He asked forgiveness of God and asked God to help him to overcome turning to these substances and turning to performing in order to heal the wound. He invited Jesus to come and heal his broken heart and bandage his wound, and he received in his own life the finished work of what Jesus did for him on the cross. Freedom began. My friend is in his mid-50s. He's from a culture where you don't cry. He can't tell the story now without weeping because he sees his brokenness, and he sees the healer and knows that this Savior has saved, healed, and cleansed and released his captive. He knows he's loved and accepted by God our Father. He knows he's a son. And he doesn't have to work at it anymore. He has received the finished work of what Jesus has done. He knows what he was created for and shares it with everybody. He's an incredible evangelist and has led many, including his family, to the Lord. I love it. His marriage, his wife would say, is the best ever. Absolutely the best ever. And she brags on what Jesus has done in their lives. Because Jesus announced when he came to the world, I have come to set the captives free. I have come to heal the broken heart. Those that are blind, I've come to give them sight and have come to restore and renew and make all things new. Seth, I love that song, um, Behold the Lamb Upon the Cross. I never can hear that song without crying. Still, I never get tired of it because it just reduces me to this is who I am. I am a wretch, and I readily admit that. But I've come to him, and he's made me worthy. And I'm his son. I no longer have to please a father. I am pleasing to my father. I am loved. I am accepted in the beloved. He's transformed me. He's healed me and offers that to all of us.
So I love that line and I wrote it down, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. I was a captive, but he's paid the price. Jesus, I thank you for the power of your word and your truth and how you came to overcome all the lies of the enemy. Known lies and unknown lies, I thank you that you have come to set us free. And that's why you announced you came to the earth. Father, I thank you for this time of sharing your word, sharing the truth of your word, sharing testimonies. Thank you that even in the book of Revelation, you talk about how they overcame the evil one by the word of their testimony. This is what God has done. And the enemy flees because he can't stand in the light of a testimony of a life that's been changed. Thank you for what you've done in my friend. Thank you for what you've done in our lives, you're doing in our lives. Thank you for the hope of the gospel that transforms today. Life begins today, and we thank you for that. Thank you for my friends gathering here today. I pray that nuggets of this will stay with them, that your spirit will prod and lead and lead them into the next step of what's coming and the freedom that you want to bring all of us and you want to bring this church. And I thank you that this is done by your spirit, not by any effort so that we cannot boast. It's you that does this. And we praise you and give you the thanks, the glory. All there is, we just say thank you. In Jesus' name.